Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Hosea in the Old Testament this morning. If uh, the thought of finding Hosea in your Bible frightens you, just find Matthew and then start turning back towards the front of your Bible to Genesis. And after 50 or 60 pages, you're going to run right into the book of Hosea. See, Hosea is one of the 12 Old Testament books that collectively we call the Minor Prophets. Now, don't let the name fool you. We don't call them minor prophets because they were written by young people or because uh, the age of the authors or, or, or they're even less inspired or as important as what we call the major prophets. None of that's true. Uh, we call them minor prophets simply because generally they are shorter in length than the major prophets. These books were written between the 8th and 5th centuries B.C. So recall that after the death of King Solomon, David's son, Solomon's son Rehoboam ascended the throne and made right away some terrible, horrible political decisions. This led to Israel's being divided into two nations, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The capital of the northern kingdom was the city of Samaria. And sometimes you'll find the prophets refer to the northern kingdoms as Samaria. And of course the southern kingdom with its capital of Jerusalem. And Sometimes we hear the northern kingdom referred to as Ephraim as well because that was the largest tribe of the north and Judah in the south. Well, some, so both kingdoms really had a history of rebellion against God. Specifically, the citizens of these kingdoms were prone to worshiping the false idols of their enemies. Of course, God had strictly forbidden that in the first two commandments he gave to Moses. Number one, have no other gods before me. Number two, don't make any graven images. And they broke both of those often. And so what we see happening is a pattern emerging. You'd have the first generation of Israelites who were faithful and God would bless them and they would have prosperity. And then the second generation would begin to go after the false idols and there would be a period of spiritual decline and God would warn the people to turn back through the prophets. And then he would send judgment as he promised through the prophets and the people would repent and come back to God and he would restore them. And then you would wash, rinse and repeat. Prosperity, decline, warning, judgment, repentance, restoration. And this cycle repeated itself many times in the nation of Israel. But God was gracious over the years to speak to the people through the prophets. Some of the prophets were sent to the northern kingdom, some to the southern, some spoke to both. The major prophets we know as Isaiah, Jeremiah, who also wrote the book of Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. The minor prophets are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now, Lord willing, this summer we are going to give you an overview of all 12 of the minor prophets. In fact, the title of the series is Majoring on the Minors. One of our deacons in our prayer time before the first service said, Hosea is a minor prophet with a major message. And he's exactly right. And so how we want to unfold this week by week is that uh, for the first 10 or 15 minutes of the message each week, I'm going to introduce you to the book, its author, the setting, the theme of the book, and then I'll choose one 
representative passage in the book to preach. In fact, I'll, I'll choose it a week before and prepare the message. I won't wait until I'm up here to choose it. Um, and it sounded like that. But, uh, and, and then we'll attempt to go in somewhat chronological order, but truth is we are unsure of the date of the writing of some of these books. But we're pretty sure that Hosea is one of the oldest. And so let, let's begin with Hosea. Its date is the 8th century, which is 2,800 years ago, 800 years before the birth of Christ. Hosea's name means the Lord save. It's a derivative of the name Joshua, which of course Jesus is a derivative of that same name Joshua, which means the Lord saves. This author, Hosea, we know almost nothing about except his name and his father's name, who was Beri. But we do know that he had a long career, almost five decades long, spanning the reigns of several kings. But what most people remember about Hosea, if anything, is his marriage and what a mess it was. Let's read about that marriage, shall we? Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea the son of Beri during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. And when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. And so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel and I, that I would ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by their Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. When she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami. For you are not my people, and I'm not your God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I've taken the liberty of giving you two outlines today. If you uh, got a copy of that as you were coming in, just stick it in your Bible. On one side is the structural outline of the entire book of, of Hosea. On the other side is our homiletical outline for the passage we're going to look at in a moment, which is Hosea chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. And that will sort of be our pattern over the next 12 weeks. Structurally... Hosea consists of 14 chapters, but uh, in reality, it's two very distinct sections. Chapters 1 through 3 is an extended metaphor of the relationship between a faithful God and an unfaithful country, Israel. It is Hosea's marriage, that's the metaphor, his marriage to a woman named Gomer who was a prostitute, and the pain and shame that her infidelity brought into their family. It's also a picture, though, hear this, of God's relentless love for his own. God's relentless love for his own. And we'll see that in chapter 14. But it begins with a very painful picture in the first three chapters. God tells his man, Hosea, to go and marry a prostitute. That seems like a strange thing for God to command someone to do. And when I preach Hosea, I always say to the young men in our church, this is not prescriptive. <laughs> this is not a sermon on how to find a spouse, okay? This is a metaphor that God uses to describe the infidelity of Israel. And this woman's name was, was Gomer, and she was a prostitute, but he brought her in, and he loved her, and he was kind to her, and they had three children, and the children's name are very significant. 
The first is named Jezreel, and it was in the Jezreel Valley that some of the greatest and most bloody battles of Israel's history occurred. And so it reminded that uh, the violence of the land. And then the second child, a daughter, was to be named Lo-Ruhamah. The prefix Lo in Hebrew means not, and Ruhamah means mercy. So he's saying, I'm not going to have mercy to the land of Israel any longer. And the third child, Lo-Ami, means not my people. The people that had once been called by my name, I'm going to disavow them. And, and so then in chapter 2, God sends the children, Jezreel, Lo-Ruhamah, and Lo-Ami, to find their mother who was off practicing prostitution and tell her to come back to their father. And ultimately, Gomer's sinfulness brought her to the lowest of the low. She sold herself into slavery and then her husband, Hosea, went and found her on the auction block and bid for her and bought her back and brought her back home, not to be a servant, but to be his wife again. This, of course, is a picture of God's mercy and his restorative grace. But for the rest of the book, chapters 4 through 14, this metaphor is set aside and God's man, Hosea, speaks directly to the nation of Israel with a prophetic pronouncement. It's not unlike what we saw the Apostle Paul do in the early chapters of the book of Romans. As a prosecuting attorney, he brings a case and he brings charges against all humanity, accusing us of the guilt of sin as a courtroom prosecutor would. He lays out the case against Israel, Hosea does, and he calls them to repentance. And there are two primary characters in the second section of Hosea. The first, of course, is God, the Lord, who is presented as faithful and unchanging and merciful and good and yet just. And then there's the nation of Israel who is described as incredibly sinful. And you might wonder what exactly was their sin. Well, turn to chapter 4 and he describes it. Hosea chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. This is Hosea now speaking directly to the nation of Israel. He says, listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. That is, I'm about to lay out your sin before you. Because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. This could be the front page of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. This is exactly the sins of our land. Adultery, which leads to other sins, stealing, lying, murder, which, by the way, all are prohibited in the Ten Commandments. They have violated God's covenant with them, just as marriage is a covenant between two parties. God had made a covenant with Israel, and they had broken it. They were guilty of apostasy or turning from their first love, turning from the true God to false gods. God had called them to be distinct and different in the promised land, and yet... Chapter 7, verse 8, Hosea says that Ephraim, remember, which is another name for the northern kingdom, mixes himself with the nations. He intermarries with these pagan women. The leaders were corrupt, both religious leaders and political leaders. And all of them were obviously and profoundly guilty. God was, in fact, about to give Israel over to their enemies, the Assyrians. And yet, in the midst of that rebuke, he offers the hope of forgiveness and restoration in the future. Well, that's the introduction. Are you ready for the sermon? I turn to the very end of the book of Hosea, the last chapter, chapter 14. 
And our text this morning is verses 1 through 3. With the background of the metaphor of marriage, with the background of Israel's obvious guilt and shame and infidelity, this is God speaking now. He says in verse 1, chapter 14, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again, Our God, to the work of our hands. For in you the orphan finds mercy. The title of the message this morning is True Repentance. Now the word repent or the concept of repentance has a very clear meaning. In fact, you saw it before you this morning. It is an order to go a different direction. Neil Flood was calling out orders to the color guard. He would say about face and forward march. Well, to repent is a commandment, not from a soldier, but from God, our creator. He tells us to turn around. This is what he says to Israel, return, which means turn around, O Israel, and come to God. To go in a new direction is what the term means. In fact, I would say that the overarching theme of the book of Hosea, indeed the overarching theme of the minor prophets is that. Return to the Lord your God. And this, of course, is a call. It's our first point. We see it in verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. It's a command of salvation and restoration. But salvation and restoration, hear me, always begins with God's initiative, not ours. This is what Paul meant when he wrote in Romans 3.20 that those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorifies. There, there are two kinds of calls that God sends out to sinners. One is the general call. That goes out to all humanity. Why? Because all humans are guilty, according to Romans 3.23. And there's the effectual call that goes out to his elect. It's the call of Jesus to Lazarus in the tomb, four days dead. Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth because of the effectual calling. This is the hand of God. It's a call to repentance, to turn around. And repentance, Kevin DeYoung says, is the missing jewel in the crown of much modern preaching. Let me say it again. Repentance is the missing jewel in the crown of much modern preaching. What he means by that is that a lot of preachers today are afraid to confront sin or to even say sin. And why is that? Well, I think I know. It's because we preachers know you don't like to hear your sinner. It doesn't make you popular to talk about sin, even say the word. And so what do we do? We talk about our mistakes or our mess-ups, or our weaknesses, or my personal favorite, our hang-ups. And we never really get to the heart of the matter, which is our personal iniquity. That's what Hosea calls it, iniquity. Now, there are certain words that we've so, used so much in the English language that it's lost any power. The word iniquity is not like that. We hardly ever hear it in our vocabulary anymore. And so when you do hear it, you know what it means. It's bad. It's the worst kind of sin. This is the word that Hosea uses. Hosea didn't 
do what so much modern preaching does, which is to water down the message, the need to repent. In fact, he backs it up. He doubles down on it. First, he calls the nation to repent, and then he tells them why they need to, which is the reason, point two, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Now, look at the personal pronouns. You have stumbled because of your iniquity. I'm going to tell you a little secret about today's generation. They don't want to take the blame for anything. But it's not just this generation. That's been going on for millennia. In fact, it's been going on since Adam and Eve in the garden. God told Adam and Eve they could have the fruit of any tree in the garden except for the one right in the middle. And they ate of it. And when he called them on the carpet for it in Genesis 3, they played the blame game. Adam blamed Eve, the woman that you gave me, and Eve blamed it on the serpent. And we've been blaming each other for the rest of history. No one wants to take responsibility. No one is culpable for anything. We just kick the can of responsibility down the road. And yet, hear me, according to the scriptures, there is no salvation without responsibility. A broken and a contrite heart, I will not deny, declares the Lord. And when Jesus wanted to illustrate the meaning of true repentance, he did so by contrasting two men who went down to the temple to pray. One was well thought of, a religious leader, and he got up and read his own resume. He told everybody how wonderful he was. He told God how wonderful he was and how fortunate God was to have him on his team. And he sat down. And then a man who was a social outcast, a tax collector, publican, he's called, could not even lift his head up out of shame for his own sin, mumbled into his shirt, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. And Jesus told his disciples that publican went down to his house justified because he was broken over his sin. And before we can ask for God's mercy... We must recognize our own sinfulness, even as David did. When he recognized that he was an adulterer and a murderer, he says, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this wickedness in your sight. So how do we express this contrition and brokenness that God honors? Well, the only way we can as humans, with our words. And when we speak to God as humans, to our creator, we call that prayer. And so that's our third point, and he tells us, about the prayer in verse 2. He says, take words with you and return to the Lord. In other words, say something to God about your sin. Pray, in other words. Say to him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. Here we see the incredible goodness and graciousness of God. You see, we sinners are so pitiful that even when he convicts us of our sinfulness, we don't know how to articulate it properly. And so God, rather than making fun of us, tells us exactly what to say to him. Two things. Number one, take away our iniquity. There's that word again, iniquity. So by virtue of even saying take away our iniquity, we're agreeing with God that we're iniquitous, right? And that if it's to be removed, and it needs to be, because what's separating us from God is our iniquity. It's our fault. We can't do anything about it. We're hopeless and helpless to remove the iniquity. So we ask God to do it. 
take away our iniquity, and secondly, receive us graciously. Because Hosea knows if God just takes away the iniquity, that only makes us neutral towards God. And we want to be more than neutral to God. We want to be intimate with God. We want to have that father-child relationship restored. We want to have that husband-wife relationship restored. And for it to happen, he has to receive us graciously. We can't earn it. By the way, the root word of gracious is grace, which means unmerited favor. It means a gift. And we have to recognize God's right. We are iniquitous. This sin is separating us from him. The relationship is broken because of us. And if it's to be restored, he has to do something about the sin. And he has to receive us, not because we deserve it, but out of grace alone. And friends, we Christians say it this way, according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians, salvation is by grace through faith. And may I say grace alone. It's not grace plus the sacraments. It's not grace plus words. It's grace alone. That has to be our prayer. And if you're here today and lost and you want to know how to be saved, bring as you're repenting words to God, take away our iniquity and receive us graciously. And if you find yourself this week Christian in a witnessing encounter and the person is ready to be saved and, and they say, what do I say? Use this, this verse as a model. Here's what you say. God's given you the script. Take away my iniquity and receive me graciously. And then there's a pledge involved. It's not just that we turn around. See, I'm marching in this direction. If I repent, I turn and do an about face and go in the opposite direction. But we also have to have the intent not to go back. That's why when we baptize someone, we say, buried with Christ in baptism, what's more permanent than death? Raised to walk in newness of life. That is, I'm a new person, and for the rest of my life, I'm going to follow Jesus. And so here's the pledge. At the end of verse 2, he says, Take, uh, Receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again our God to the work of our hands, for in you the orphan finds mercy. See, the evidence of true repentance is always a changed life. It's not just our words. Sometimes we say when someone says, I'm sorry, oh, those are just words. You don't mean it. But it has to begin with words. That's why he says the fruit of our lips. It, it means the sacrifice of our lips. See, what Israel was doing, they were continuing to bring the sheep and the goats and the cows and killing them at the altar. But they were adding to that the idolatrous practices. And God says, you've got to stop all of that and you've got to say the right thing, which is take away our iniquity and receive us graciously. And then you've got to make this pledge from your lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again our God to the works of our hands. What does that mean? Well, when the John the Baptist baptized sinners out in the Jordan River, he says, now go and do works worthy or fitting of repentance. Don't just say it, now go live it. When the Lord Jesus was describing salvation, he did so in the parable of the soils. He said a sower went out to sow. That is, a farmer took a handful of seed and spread it everywhere. And some of it fell on hard soil, and some of it fell on shallow soil, and some of it fell on thorny soil, but some of it fell on good soil. 
that was soft and fertile and it germinated and it sprang up. But the way you know that the seed was true is that it produced fruit. And hear me, the only reliable evidence of conversion that the Bible offers is not that you were baptized. It's not that you walked an aisle or raised your hand at Bible school. The only reliable evidence of conversion is a changed life. It is the fruit of the Spirit. And this is what he says. You have to take the pledge that Assyria will not save us. What does that mean? Well, Israel, when they got themselves in trouble, rather than going to God for help, they would go to their neighbors. And the Assyrians were just to the north of Israel. And so when Egypt would get after them, they'd go to Assyria and these other countries and make alliances. And they'd say, yeah, send us some horses or send us some chariots or send us some army personnel and and we can defeat our enemies rather than going to God in humility and asking for help. And so he's asking us to disavow trust in anyone or anything but Jehovah. And then he's asking them to disavow their own works righteousness. We will not say again our God to the works of our hands. Now he's speaking very literally of these idols they were making, these graven images. Now this is how silly it was. They would go out and find a tree. They would chop it down. They would put it on the lathe and they begin to spin it. And they would take chisels and they would start to get it looking like a human being. And then they would take other chisels and, and get it looking just like a human being. And, and then they'd have their wives make little outfits for it to wear. And then they'd put some varnish on it and they'd put it on the shelf and then they'd pray to it. And they'd say, God, what do you want us to do? And expect an answer. And how foolish that is in hindsight, but that's exactly what they were doing. And God says, I want you to take this vow. Never again will we say our God to something we've made. Now, what does that say to New Testament people? It says, when we come to Jesus for salvation, we have to disavow anything and everything else. The way to Christ is a narrow way, isn't it? It's entered through by a small gate. And it's walked upon a narrow path full of dangerous toils and snares. And you can't take Jesus and anything with you. Christ alone. We have to disavow any good works that we perceive in ourselves or any worthiness. We have to have the same attitude as that publican. I am worthless and helpless. Have mercy upon me, the sinner. And in the ancient world, there, there was nothing more helpless than an orphan child. And that's why he says at the end of verse 3, For in you, God, the orphan finds mercy. He doesn't come as a conquering hero. He doesn't come as a general. He doesn't come as a soldier asking for rewards from battle. He comes as an orphan having no possessions and no relationships on earth and depending upon the kindness and the mercy of his benefactor. That saying that's cross-stitched and on the wall of many of you growing up Nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling. This is what he's saying. I don't have anything in my resume that's good enough. I don't have any potential in the future to do better. 
I'm coming to you as an orphan, hopeless and helpless, trusting in your goodness rather than my own. That's the way of salvation. It was true in the days of Hosea. It's true today. I suspect there are some here when you heard we're going to do 12 weeks on the minor prophets rolled your eyes up in the back of your head. You said, oh mercy, I thought Romans was hard or long. Maybe some of you think, well, why don't we just do the simple gospel? Well, we've done the gospel. We're going to do the gospel, but it's through the lens of the Old Testament. I got up early this morning because I was thinking as I laid in bed, I, what does the New Testament say about Hosea, if anything? Did you know there are nine passages, eight or nine passages in the New Testament that quote Hosea. Uh, Matthew 2 and Matthew 9 both quote Hosea. Hosea 1 says that out of Egypt I called my son. And we know that Jesus and his family went to Egypt after his birth. Hosea 6 says I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. And Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because they were doing the right thing ceremonially but their hearts were wrong. Luke 23, 30, they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us. That's taken from Hosea 10, 8. Revelation 6, 16 quotes the same verse. Peter, in 1 Peter 2, 10, talks about God having mercy on people. But I think my favorite New Testament passage that quotes Hosea is the Apostle Paul, especially this Memorial Day as we think about death, is 1 Corinthians 15, 55. You all know it. Paul looks at death in the eye and he says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Did you know that came from Hosea? Hosea 13, 14 says, Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. See, the same God who wrote Hosea wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Amen? And he has not changed. And... People have the same needs today that they had in the days of Hosea. And if you want to allegorize the book of Hosea, though I don't recommend it, you think about Hosea's marriage to Gomer and their three children. We're not the children and we're not Hosea. We're the prostitute in that allegory. God has been gracious to us with his common grace. He's allowed us to live in this land of freedom He's given most of us good health and incredible prosperity. And rather than returning faithfulness to Him, most of us have rebelled and turned our back on Him. And we've said to God collectively as a nation, stay out of our schools, stay out of our bedroom, and stay out of my life. And I believe we stand today under God's judgment. I hear people say, if we don't turn around and repent, God's going to judge us. Friends, God's already judging us. See, what God does to judge most of the time is, is not to zap us with thunderbolts. He turns us over to a reprobate mind and says, if that's how you want it, that's how you get it. And we've told God we don't want you in our schools and we don't want you in our families. And Some have said we don't want you in our churches. And God said, okay. And he's given us what we wanted and we have reaped the whirlwind. And we desperately need to turn around to repent. He's calling us back as a nation. He's calling some in this room who don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior to salvation. He's saying, return to me. 
You say, I don't know what to say. He's told you what to say. Forgive me of my iniquity and receive me unto yourself. That is the only prayer and the only hope you have, not based on your potential goodness. You have none. But based upon his unchanging and unflinching nature. As an orphan depends upon the adoptive father, we depend upon the goodness and the kindness of God to do what he said he'll do. And what's he said he'll do? First John, we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's freedom, isn't it? Freedom isn't free. It cost him everything. Just as Hosea had to go to the slave market of sin and bid grain to get his wife back, Jesus went to the slave market of sin where he found you and I there. But it wasn't grain that was the price. It was the price of his own blood. It is through the blood of Jesus that we have been redeemed. That's how much he loved us. And that's why I said this is a radical kind of love that we see in the book of Hosea. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the minor prophets because they do have a major message. It's a message of repentance. Father, I pray for one soul here today who knows you not, that they would repent. That you would convict them of personal sin, guilt, and your justice and your perfect righteousness and judgment to come today by your spirit. Lord, I pray you grant them faith and repentance that only you can give. Father, I pray for our church that you'd send revival and awakening through collective repentance. And Father, I pray for our nation under the judgment of God, giving us over to what we want. Father, I pray for restoration. I pray for reconciliation. Lord, it seems hopeless, just as it did in Hosea's day. But Lord, as Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. I pray for a parent today who has been calling a child to repentance for decades, and they're about ready to give up. Lord, help them not to. Just as that father in Jesus' story, the prodigal son, was always looking down the road, praying, and one day saw him come. He'd come to his, his senses. He ran to him, and he said, Kill the fatted calf. Put a robe on him, a ring on his hand, for my son that was lost is found. Thank you, Lord, that you receive us when we confess our iniquity. You restore us, not to a place of servitude, but to intimacy, to sonship. In fact, when the New Testament describes the relationship of Christ and the church, it's, it's one of husband and wife in that beautiful covenant relationship. Lord, I, I pray for that kind of renewal Lord, I pray for marriages, husbands and wives that are ready to give up on each other. And we saw Hosea who didn't give up on his wife, though she was incredibly unfaithful. He pursued her, brought her back. Lord, give us endurance and perseverance to forgive one another. Father, we, we pray that you glorify yourself through this study. Teach us, Lord. Mend us. Make us more like Jesus through it. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. 
To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.